out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Higsons because I recently spoke to Simon Charterton, drummer of the band, to find out more about life, love and poetry. And also, they have got a special release that's going to be happening in April 2023. This is going to be their complete two-tone recordings being re-issued well, for um, Record Store Day. This is going to be Run Me Down, which features something like six songs. So there you go. Do check it out. So this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that gets edited out, we get down to that exciting subject. That was the early formative years and the musical awakening. Anyway, Simon's going to tell us everything he's going to tell us now. Simon, it is over to you. Well, I, I remember there being lots of old Beatles singles lying around in the house when I was young. And I remember going to buy, um, me and my brother going to the record shop, he bought Penny Lane's Strawberry Fields Forever, and I bought I'm a Believer. Right. Which I think had Stepping Stone on the other side of it. Right, the monkeys. Which the old Sex Pistols then did as well. They I? did, yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, a classic, really. We love that. That was monkeys. 1967. I, those were the first records I bought. And uh, that, that's probably what you might say is a, some kind of awakening. Thing, 1967. Right? That was the summer of love, actually, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's all you, you were there at the sort of the moment it all sprung. Well, I was born in 1960. So I, I do remember England winning the World Cup and. Um, the summer of love but i was obviously very young yeah you were six you probably yeah. weren't you weren't at hyde park old enough to kick a football around but not old enough to get out of it in hyde park no no i would have i would have been worried about your parents yeah. talking of which did you have a kind of were your parents kind of creative or or musically driven or did they have any impact on your life well, yeah, my dad was in advertising. My mother was a BBC producer for, well, she produced Woman's Hour. So mm-hmm. I had sort of middle class London um, kind of creative background, I suppose, yeah. Yes. So when you got to that dear old age of 16, which is quite a moment, isn't it? Because you can leave school then, mm-hmm. 1976 in your case. Oh, and I'm doing the maths, aren't I? Here? <laughs> um, so did you stay on to do A-levels or did you sort of just hit the road in a Jack Kerouac sort of way? I, I did I did A levels. Uh, then I, then I had two year. Uh, well, I, had, I had an option of of uh, a year or two years to do um, kind of gap years and then go to university. Right. So I that just so happened to coincide in seventy six seventy seven with punk. So um, I I was in a, a punk band called the Homosexuals. Mm-hmm. And then I was in I, I got a friend of mine got teamed up with Alex Harvey, who was you know the sensational Alex Harvey. But so I ended up being the drummer for Alex Harvey. And then after all of that, I ended up going to university and uh, me and Charlie um, and a couple of others started the Hickson. Yes. Blimey O'Reilly. That's quite amazing. So when did when did your kind of getting the musical instrument sort of appear in your life? When did when did the drums suddenly um, appear? Oh, I was probably, probably about 12 or something like that. Just uh, couldn't be bothered to practice the piano or any of those things. So the drums, I, I found I was quite good at them. So, I, I yeah, lazy, laziness, really. Yes, but but at the same time, having spoke to 
lots of musicians, drummers and producers, the drummer becomes this very pivotal kind of member of the band, yeah. especially in the studio, which can make and break most people, you know, especially the drummer, really. So then, yeah, so, so you got to sort of 18, you had your gap year. Then you mentioned Alex Harvey. How did you manage to be in the Alex Harvey band? Well, a friend of mine who was in the sort of kind of school band that we had, that he, I'm not sure how, but he ended up being in the Alex Harvey band after he'd split up his sensational band. Um, and and then I ended up getting, being drafted in as his drummer. I think what it was was that punk had happened and Alex Harvey wanted two really young people in his band. Right. So he got me and Matthew sang and we were both sort of 17, 18. And Alex Harvey was like 42 or something like that. So. Yeah, he looked sinister in my, you know, when I saw him on Top of the Pops doing, you know, the Boston Tea Party yeah, yeah. and Next. Well, he looked sinister to me and he looked like a really old, dangerous man. But in fact, he lived in East Finchley and he was, you know, quite a suburban lifestyle. Yes. But I did an interview with his guitarist actually a few years ago called, is it Zal? Zal Clemenson. Yes. And um, it sounded like a very damaging time to be in a band with Alex Harvey, really. Well, I mean, they they, they were sort of very big in the 70s and they, they were sort of proper touring, you know, all kind of 70s rock stuff. When, yes. I, when I was doing it, as I say, he was living in Finchley, in East Finchley, and it was, it was much more um, sedate. I wouldn't say sedate, maybe not the right word, but it was certainly less, less of a kind of big, full-on rock thing, you know. Yes. It was attempting a comeback, even though he'd only been out of it for about two years. Um, but it was sort of, he had, we did an album called The Mafia Stole My Guitar. Blimey. And, uh, it sort of petered out, really. He, and then he <laughs> died about two years later anyway, so. Yes, well, it's, it's it, what's what I've noticed with a lot of artists in, if they have that kind of zeitgeist moment, it's really difficult to then have, keep that going, you know. So some people that I've sort of really liked in the 70s, their 80s work has not been good. And yeah. if they can then get through they that, they can period. keep going. Though they often find it comes back good around about nineteen ninety nine or something like that. Yeah. Yes, I know David Bowie's eighties work was not that great. I mean, it was all right, but I do notice. I did have noticed that a lot of those artists that led the way in the seventies were often floundering, like a you know a lost puppy. Yeah, I think if Alex Harvey hadn't gone and died by by sort of you know nineties, he would probably be quite an iconic thing. I'm sure. I'm sure. He would have been. He would have emerged as a sort of punk icon, and he would. And he and he knew people like Ian Dewey. They were kind of friends. So I mean, he would. I think he would have ended up in sort of musical theatre, but but a good a good quality musical theatre. You know. Well, it's interesting because I think that's where he started in the sixties, didn't he? Sort of musical theatre and, and. Well, he was. Yeah, but he did. He was. It was originally Scotland's answer to. Sorry, Scotland. Yeah, Scotland's answer to Tommy Steele. Yeah. And then, then he was in Hair. He was in the original cast of Hair. Yes. And Ian Gillen from Deep Purple, he was in the original cast of Jesus Christ Superstar. So yeah, you never know where it might lead. So there you go. So then, right. OK, that's Ali. I was just really excited about the Alex Harvey thing, actually. I sort of, you know, I've always, I still sort of listen to various kind of um, certain tracks that yeah. I still think are, they, they're kind of slightly unsettling. They're quite unsettling, actually, aren't yeah. they? They're quite they're quite like you wouldn't want to mix with the mess with the band or. Yes, there's something quite um, well, edgy. I mean, as, when I when I played with them, I was sort of 17, 18, and yeah, probably about seven, eight, 18, 19. But there was there were everyone in it was very very hard drinking. Yes, say. it's, and it's I was too. I mean, I was completely hard drinking, so I, I I'm not going to. I I pretty much drank my way from then through the whole of the 80s. So 
you know, that's huge, huge gaps in my memory. But you had a very young liver, whereas Alex Harvey, <laughs> seeing those interviews of him towards the end where he's smoking and yeah. drinking, yeah. He, he doesn't look like a healthy, he doesn't look like he's going to run the 5k park run on a Saturday morning, does he really? Well, he he, he would, he would um, sometimes on stage, we'd be sort of playing and he'd suddenly get really angry and so tell everyone to get off the stage, get off the stage, get off the stage. And he'd just sort of sit there looking miserable. And then he'd sort of do a slow blues on his own. And eventually he'd ask us all to come back on again. And I think that was a mixture of sort of, I think he was on antidepressants as well as, um, you know, alcohol. Yeah, I, I think it's not a good combination, you know. I think he, I think he was, um, I think he was in a bit of a mess at the time, but like that, you know. Yeah, and and the guitarist I spoke to, I mean, he he became a taxi driver quite soon after his his moment with Alex Harvey's. Which... Well, he did once actually pick up. There was there was you know a classic amusing story when the the version of the band I was in were in the studio, and he did pick up Alex and the new guitarist at the at the studio nobody knew it was going to happen but it was just an unfortunate sort of coincidence oh that is painful i would have thought so it was painful so then you know with your that's amazing that you managed to go from alex harvey to then university life well i mean like the, the alex harvey thing after doing a kind of tour uh and uh recording an album there was clearly going to be a big period of like nothing you know downtime and i had a university place so i thought i'll go to university and for my first year at university we did. I did university terms. Then in the holidays, little tours with Alex Harvey. So it was like doubling up. Um, and then in the summer of the end of my end of my first year at university, I left. The band was you know packed it in really. So so um, that at that point we started the had started the Higsons at UEA as a sort of um, it was just a university band, you know. Like yes. In those days, in those days, half the reason to go to university was to meet some people and form a band. That's sort of what you did, you know. Well, you got a grant, didn't you? And tuition. You got a grant. Days. It was in those. It was a totally different attitude. Yeah, and and obviously, if you got your A levels and you got there, it was it was pretty pretty good situation, really. Yes, I, I remember my brother managed. You know, he he saved money. I mean, granted, he he became an accountant, but he would be able to <laughs> get housing benefit. He would be able to sign on during the Christmas holidays, Easter holidays, and summer holidays, and. It's I think just... when I was there, they'd stopped you. They'd stopped you being able to get your rent, or but you could start. You could sign on, but you often had to kind of give up where you were living and kind of go back to your parents and that sort of thing. To be um, honest, most people were so blasé they couldn't even be bothered to do that, could they? <laughs> yeah, well, and of course, in, the, in those days, you could squatting and all that stuff was so easy that there was always somewhere to be. You know, yeah. to, you could live. So just just because I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, did you did you go to the UEA? Was that one of your yeah. That moment, and what were you going to study there? I, I went. And I did. I did. Took my. I got my degree in um, English and American literature, and a minor in film studies as well. Right. So you managed. You you stayed it for three years. Yeah, all of us. All of the Higsons did. Uh, no, apart from one, I think all of us. All of us did the whole thing. Yeah. Blimey, because um, did you meet Arthur Smith? Was he there at the time? I think he was before us. I mean, I I, I know he. I know he's an old. Um, UEA person. I think he was there in the um, mid seventies, possibly. I don't know. I mean, I was there from seventy nine to eighty two, so mm -hmm. I, I never. I don't think I coincided. Yes. So look, seventy nine, major moment in our lives. You know, yeah. Margaret Thatcher gets in. The Conservative government are then there for what feels like a billion years, Forever. and then we have the the Falkland crisis. We have the 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 miners' strike. We have you know Greenham Common. It feels like we're all going to die in a nuclear war. 
And then a few years later, I suppose that's kind of red wedge. So it's a bit more. But then so so what was it like for you as a young, you know, activist? I'm assuming you're a, a young activist or were you just a bit tr- too drunk? Um, well, we the the band in the in the in the eighties and early eighties we did a lot of things for the miners' strike and all that sort of thing. And at university, there were often occupations of the registry, that sort of you know student occupation sort of thing. Yes, and, and I'd be involved in all of those. Lots of friends of mine joined the Socialist Workers Party. I I, I never I never joined any political party. But I told myself, but we were very no, we were very much uh, keen to be involved in. I mean, anything that seemed, basically, we all hated Thatcher, and uh, we still do, you know. <laughs> yes. So during your, your three years at the UEA, a fine city, um, so when did you form the band again? When Was it during the, 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 the degree oh, period? I think it was, I think, we, I think we did it in 19, in summer of 1980, I think, possibly. Right, it came. I mean, came. I, think, I think our first gig was the summer of 1980. Yes, and at that stage, was there much of a scene in in Norwich musically? Did you feel not, that not really? But but we we did create one. I mean, we we did. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Terry's probably told us that somebody somebody put out a uh, somebody wanted to put out a kind of Norwich compilation album, and they asked various people, you know, including us, if we wanted to put something on it, and it was called Norwich a Fine City. Yes, which is the sign, and um, and then 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 there was a amazing coincidence that John Peel on on the radio said does anyone know any local bands to him and he lived in Suffolk and somebody sent him that and he particularly liked the Higson so he gave us well we ended up doing about seven sessions for him but but um, um that, and then after that he other Norwich bands started getting sessions on John Peel and, and there was a point in the probably about by about probably 82 when it was well, 81 82 when Norwich was very briefly the sort of trendy indie place for A and R men to go up the A11 to track them down. Yes, at that stage. Yeah. The back, I mean, the Farmers Boys. There was um, serious drinking. There's one called Screen Three. You know, the Crabs, um, Popular Voice. There's, so there were yeah, there, and there were loads of others. But they all ended up getting records out and having their moment in in the NME and sounds and stuff like that. Yes, and what did Norwich at that stage? The art centre was called Premises, I guess, at that point, was it? It was, I think, yeah. The yeah. Premises. So when when the band got together, did you have a solid lineup, or was it quite fluid at the at um, during the? Well, by the period? time it became the Higsons, um, it was a it was a it was a stable lineup. But prior to that, we probably did, we'd, we'd had sort of. I think we had a keyboard. I think Pete Saunders played. He was in Dexys Middle. I think he played keyboards at one point but only like for one one gig and we didn't even have a name then but yes. when we had a name the Higgsons it was it was the five of us but that but there's Dave Dave Cummings was the guitarist he then left university and we replaced him with Stuart McGeechin who's the one on this record right so he went on to be a guitarist with uh, Delamitri didn't he he did Delamitri and he did um Lloyd Cole God, he, he went on to to great indie things. What do you? What was kind of what drove the band's kind of sound and Sonic's sort of landscape? You know, what was what was kind of your influences at this stage? What were you trying to go for? Because there was that punk. You know, there was on a very sort of basic level there was punk 
I mean, there was a lot of other things as well. Um, and then there's that post-punk period, isn't there? And then there was kind of new Paisley. There was a goth scene. There was a narco-punk going on. So what was what was the kind of the driving force for the Hicksons? We 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 obviously all had liked punk, but we were big fans of a certain ratio as well. Right. And I was. I mean, I was a big fan of of um, things like Little Feet and funk funk stuff from the seventies as well. So as a drummer, I was tending towards having a funky sound, and I and I particularly we uh, as a band we then we were pretty much contemporaries of like the pop group and Pink Bag and those kind of people. Yes. So we we and and obviously certain we used to travel you know all over the place to go and see a certain ratio. So we so we were developing a sound that was it had that that funk um, drum and drums and bass funky sound that the ratio had, but we would we would have a sort of punky guitars and we have, and most of our songs were quite fast in fact if you hear them now they sound stupidly fast i think yes but, so it was it was you know it's very much funk and punk um yes one thing i've noticed because i've done a lot of i've done a lot of interviews but then the the kind of new york no wave scene you know which came towards mm. the late 70s early 80s i mean their kind of i suppose post-punk period was it's much more kind of has has a sort of a kind of much more african rhythms or kind of jazz rhythms it's much yeah. more kind of and danceable you know I suppose there was a lot more clubs that they were going to and a much more of a, cult, a cultural mashup really which was quite interesting because there was bands like was it liquid 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 and there was a record label called Z Records which again Z Records yeah yeah which just had the most kind of Mutant, interesting Mutant disco compilation that's the one yes yeah. I think possibly Brian Eno was part of that kind of um yeah. I think he might have produced. There's Don and was not was in that thing. I think in that in that world. Yes. So when we so, we were we I mean we we did gigs with um, James Chance and the Contortions. Oh my god, that is so cool. And uh, James Blood Elmer. And um, Defun we did two or three with Defunct as well. We 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 were really like Defunct were very much our kind of band. You know they were they yes. were funky and they they had a bit of brass in there and that was that was pretty much what we were trying to do. Yeah, because it's interesting because you were around that time when, again, you know, on a slightly simplistic level, but the 80s, as it progressed, about 82, 83, the Smiths appear, don't they? And then there's this kind of five years of kind of indie pop, which the Smiths mm. kind of, I suppose they are the band, aren't they, at that point? They, there's, there's no one. I can't actually remember the chronology. I mean, was it 83 or was it a bit later? I can't remember. No, 83 was Hand in Glove. Was it Hand in Glove? And that kind of cements a certain scene for a, quite a mm. period of time. And that's, you know, that's quite something really, isn't it? And and suddenly Morrissey, Marr are the kind of the two. I mean, mm. you had that kind of mainstream production sound of Trevor Horn with that did, you know, people like Tina Turner and um, Dire Straits. And, you know, there were bands like, you know, obviously Sade and um, Duran Durand and, and such polished. like. They polished sounds, yeah. Very polished sound. So as with the Higsons, you were really lucky with the John Peel moment because you had, yeah, you had a lot of sessions, didn't you? That must have felt like a kind of being blessed by some sort of higher being. Well, I mean, in retrospect, you realise how much easier it was to sort of, it, it, was, a, it was a bit potluck, but, the, but the, the access points still existed. So, for example, if you had a single out, you could send it to sounds, literally just send it in. And the enemy, and you might get reviewed, and and if you got reviewed, you might get slagged off, or you might get well reviewed. And similarly, John Peel always listened to everything he got, apparently, you know. So, so there were these, and obviously, 
there wasn't the internet, there wasn't this absolute huge amount of music that there is now. So to an extent, there was a, you know, you could, there was luck, but there was also, there were sort of ways in which didn't involve paying out huge amounts of money, you know. Yes. And, um, so, and so we, 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 it, we know that we we had this one moment with John Peel, that was great for us. And then we had our first single came out and that was like single of the week in sounds or something like that. So that was like our moment. We, you know, and if in retrospect, we should have probably packed it in then. So you know, that this is our peak. We that thank you very much. But obviously, <laughs> like most bands, you keep going for a few years. And um when things change to being uh the, the sort of the kind of indie that you're referring to, which and then it, then it becomes like the C eighty six type stuff, doesn't it? We do, I mean, that, yes. Uh, we were definitely by that point sort of going in a not exactly treading water, but we we'd had our time. Yes, you know, and I think but everybody, I, every band, sort of knows this, but only in retrospect, you know, that you went on a little bit longer than you should. Yes, have. well, I think unless you're someone like Bono or you know you two or some other band, possibly Simple Minds from that period, there's a sort of a we're going to do this and we're going to make a career out of it. I suppose Sting to a degree, but he yeah. obviously got fed up with the police and went just... It's just. I think management role. has a lot to do with that as well, like very strong management that, that sees it as a money-making career, lifetime career. Yes. And okay. constantly evolving. And I mean, you too, I think, benefited enormously from the Clash splitting up because the Clash were just sort of breaking America and, and making punk... Um, suddenly sort of transatlantic and not being all sort of we you know bored with the USA and you two sort of filled that void when they split up and just became the big you know new rock band really yes and, and also they they... just as soon as they became a bit pompous somebody would say you've got to stop being pompous so that so they'd start taking the piss out of themselves they've, they've sort of known how to a bit like Madonna or you know just how to kind of keep on changing enough to keep an audience but sort of maneuver your way through times you know well it Absolutely. And also, I think with the clash, you know, their, their sort of changing lineup, especially towards the end, was a bit embarrassing. That was so, embarrassing, yeah. And their last album, not so good. Whereas you two, yes, I think, I think they, there was some, there was a phrase I remember that was um, Stuart Copeland from the police who, when they kind of reformed and it was worth millions. So they thought, actually, this is worth so much money. We, we do hate each other, but it would be quite good just to do it for the sort of, the, the sort of pension pot, I suppose. Mm. And um, so they were all enjoying it, apart from two people, which was Sting and Stuart. And they had band therapy to um, sort out some of their issues just to get them through the rest of the tour and get the, you know, the payoff. And then just think that's it. So I think with a lot of bands, I'm sure they really rub each other up the wrong way. But with some people, they think it's worth just sticking with it. Let's just keep going because... Um, Otherwise, we're going to have to get a day job, which is my... Well, I don't think anybody in the old days used to think that there was this second life, you know, this sort of, you have your moment, and then if you stick around 10 years later, you can get it back together and do, as you say, the pension pot. But now that's become an established thing. Yes. All sorts of bands will keep going and keep going, and then some of them become national institutions. Yes, and, and go and play at, you know, holiday camps for sort of um, the nostalgia value. But yeah, what, what I've noticed... Or the roof of Buckingham Palace or whatever. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah, that's if you can get up the ladder. But um, yes, I think most bands from that 80s, especially, which is my decade that I seem to focus on, they have a five-year narrative. They have the 12-month honeymoon period. They rehearse, they get a sound, they get the a single recorded. They play, you know, John Peel goes, oh, yeah. that's great. They get a John Peel session. Dale Griffith, you know, from Not The Hoople does a great production job. Right. 
and they go on to do the next album. They get their little, you know, mini bus or van. They tour around all the art centers. They think this is going really well. They don't realize they've made no money, but they're happy. Their second, third albums is when they're just getting a bit irritated and thinking, where is the money? <laughs> There's none. And um, by the way, what you signed wasn't probably that wise. So never mind. You might as well break up. And also you had the gatekeepers. You had John Peel. You also had Janice Long, Long Kid Jensen and three weekly music papers, which any Americans will tell you is just amazing, you know, fantastic because you've got, you know, that access to a massive kind of, um, uh, yeah, audience at times. So we'd look they had a you know circulation of about 100,000, didn't they, some of those? Well, I mean, that's why I think a lot of American acts have come over here to, to, to make it and then go back over to America because it is, as you say, it, it, back then anyway, it was a much smaller amount of access points. So if you could get through them, you could actually get known, you know? Yes. And the, and the, other, thing, the other thing that happens in that sort of five-year window you're talking about is, I mean, to do all that stuff, you've got to be quite united. So, you know, if you're all students together, you probably will say, yeah, we're all in it together. We'll do this. But after a few years, some people have, they might even have families or they might they might need to get a, earn a bit more money or they might not want to be doing all that traveling all the time. So, you know, yes. that, that camaraderie. And the only thing that stops that from dissipating is if the band is really successful, I think. And yeah. then they will start doing it because they think we're making a load of cash. So how, how could we stop this? You know, I think we're also with the 80s, there was so much unemployment with younger people from yeah. the left that um, there was like, you know, there has job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes. There was all these kind of things that people could do to yeah. be sort of claiming a bit of money and housing benefit and housing um, council tax and think, well, you know, there's no job, there's no future particularly. Yeah. So the band gives us a certain identity and um, oh, yeah. sort of confidence. Well, it gives it gives it keeps exactly, and you, it gives you a sense of purpose and uh, a unity and a belief that you're, you know, you have a united vision. Yes, which is probably similar to a lot of. I mean, I saw a documentary on the flat Earth uh, people the other day, and they may be bad, but they they have that same that same unity. You know, they're like they're like fans of some obscure cult band, but it keeps them all keeps them all going. You know, keeps them very happy. I did an interview with a member from a band of a band. He told me I can't then use the interview because he realised he sounded a bit bonkers. But you know, flat Earth, yeah. fake Moon, everything was a conspiracy theory. Yeah, no, I saw. Well, I said that's all in this documentary, and I just couldn't. <laughs> I, I had never heard of that dome over the Earth thing, but um, no, I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and of course they can't not believe it because if you if they stepped outside of that pattern, they'd lose all their friends, all their relationships, and that that everything would collapse. So they have to keep it going. It's a sort of strange. And I think some people treat bands like that, you know. Certainly, a lot of fans treat bands like that. They they, they come to, you know, they come to things all the time. They want to know everything because it, that band is their sort of world, you know. Yes, absolutely. No, it's it's a fascinating world. But you know, when I was trying to sort of keep the you know interview going, thinking, oh my goodness me, that's amazing. I mean, I know the nine eleven blah blah, but mm -hmm. the the fake moon flat Earth. And and everything else was just like, wow, it's, you know, I just, I felt exhausted at the end of it. I was absolutely shocked, you know. I didn't know what to Google next, put it that way. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't sure what I was supposed to think about it all. Anyway, look, so that, so, so your first release as the Higsons was a live album at the Jacquard, 1982. So at this time... You'd just about finished university, hadn't you? This was the sort of that was the, that was that was. I mean, we'd, we'd had a couple of singles out before that. The, the singles "I Don't Want to Live with Monkeys" and uh, "It Goes Whap" were the singles. And I think I think that live at the Jackard thing came out 
just as we were finishing university yeah yes but then you have the big album don't you the curse of the higsons yeah that that didn't that was until about 1984 uh, because that took that took a long time it was bits and pieces coming from all over the place to piece it together and eventually that came out and it, it came out probably at the point when we really were getting close to thinking we, we've we've had our time I would I would suggest yes I guess it was because you were sort of only a few more years before it when you were sort of so that wasn't just the one project that you went into the studio for two weeks having written the material and went right that's it we're going to do it well I mean in our in our career we we had so many little labels we were on and I think that album had some stuff that was on the two-tone thing and some stuff that had been on previously recorded and um I I, I mean I, I can't remember the entire chronology but certainly it was it was bits and pieces it, I mean, there was there was there was a concentrated period when we were recording it in Wave Studios, but right. but it was sort of it wasn't like a kind of a, a thing that we all said right. This is our album. Let's go and write a bunch of stuff. Lots of it was stuff we've been doing live for years, and um, yeah, it was a bit of. I think I think it wasn't it wasn't like we we said this is our masterwork. It, it was more of a sort of. Um, a potpourri of bits and pieces, I think. Yes, a sort of a mashup, a sort of archival project to um, sort of, you know. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the Higsons ever had an album that we could say was that's the great album. You know, that's the one which we. But I think we I think we had a couple of good singles, and um, I think um, the other thing is we were very good live. Live was our thing. So if if the live at the Jackard thing had been recorded on better equipment because i'm i think in those days it was probably a cassette machine or something yes by a but guy called death jeff i think probably i it. have no idea but certainly it, it, you know as i say i don't I, I don't have a totally clear memory of any of this but i've, I've always felt it was sort of it was singles were the strength and live gigs were the strength of the higgsons and um you know i don't think i don't think the album I mean, but but the but the material on two tone was very that was that was us being much more polished and trying to go for a sound that was slightly more. I mean, I think I think Run Me Down actually had an outside chance of having been a hit single, but yes. it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't one, but it had a polished sound. You know, did you with all those record labels? And that's the one thing that I've sort of come across and still find quite interesting to try and work out is the world of ownership publishing you know, who gets what, did you, uh, you know, because obviously when you've been on different record labels, often there's a legality, which kind of everybody thinks, oh, it'd be great to release this stuff from 40 years ago, but we don't own it and we don't know who does and it's in a cupboard somewhere. So did you manage to sort of keep hold of the material that you recorded? Well, Terry, Terry Edwards has always had this uh, thing of his own career and he's had a label sartorial records that he's put his stuff out on. And over the years, um, he has got the rights back. So I think all the stuff, all the stuff now is 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 back in our um, ownership. But you do find that ultimately, um, I mean, a lot of these tiny labels end up being owned by Cherry Red. I don't know how it ends, but you get these Cherry Red compilations where tons and tons of obscure indie stuff is is suddenly swallowed. Um, yeah, well, I, I've no idea how any, how any of this works. You suddenly think, oh yes, that, you know, they're the people who now own. We we have a DVD of the Higsons live at Camden Palace. It's out on Cherry Red Video or something like that. You know, no idea how that how they have they own it, but um, they they swallowed up various catalogs. I think it is over the yeah. years. Yeah, 
I think I think somebody who has that indie record label as an example, and they think I'm not sure what to do with it. I'll just see if Cherry Red will, I'll give them a phone call and see if they would like to give me some money for it and I'll just give it to them. Mm. And it, and the band don't really, they don't enter into that negotiation. Because no, when, when they recorded it, they probably signed something to say, oh yeah, give us this money. But his, it's a bit like going to a supermarket. It's like you buy something and you get something, hopefully. Um, and then that's that's theirs. And they go, well, I own this. The band don't own it because I And the band, the band would have only ever seen tiny little trickles of money anyway so they probably had stopped thinking about it so so it's worth if you own the label with all of that lots of indie bands back catalog that's worth something but each of those individual bands um you know it what they what they what they are owed is is very small so yeah. so it's worth it for cherry red to have, to have a huge number of them yes and then i mean recently they put out you know a compilation on you know the manchester scene liverpool sheffield yeah. They've done C86, they've gone up to C91, they've gone down to C85, they've done goth ones, they're doing electronic ones. Any Anything they can kind of creatively think about from that period, they're just putting these ones out. And because it's over 40 years now, people are going, oh, that'd be great. I'd love to get a triple CD box set of that material that I slightly forgot about and reminisce and play and enjoy and then you know kids all around the world are discovering these bands for themselves as we know as once being young and discovering bands is one of the great joys of life isn't it you know well, I think if, you're, if you're discovering them now and you're young you you you'll probably get them via you know obviously um the internet and stuff and you're not really so aware of the chronology you know when when these different things were they're just all they're just all music you're hearing and you like it you know Yes. You might, you might not be thinking, oh, that, that song by Franz Ferdinand is very similar to that song by the Gang of Four. It's just they're both songs that sound have a angular guitar. And you like if you like it, you like it, you know. But you you also remember from that period we were very tribal, weren't we? So we didn't yeah, yeah. we didn't sort of like you know, like the beat and status quo because you would have been beaten up, wouldn't you, for sort of liking one or the other. You know, I remember I grew up in a kind of slightly heavy metal kind of community, I suppose. So if anybody was mod, they would have been chased down the street and kicked. So um, well, when I when I grew up it was it was more like you either had an album under your arm, or if you liked singles, you were, you know, I mean back in the early 70s, singles were for like teeny boppers and albums for people like prog prog rock. Yeah. And then when punk came along, that turned it around and it singles were suddenly everything. Yes. Well, um, I had I had a brother who was seven years old and he was prog rock and he did not have any singles. All his albums were in those plastic covers. Yeah. And um, I became... Roger uh, Dean sleeves and Rod perfect, perfect copies. Yes, absolutely. Untouched. And, you know, I was forbidden to play them. So I obviously sneaked into his room and listened to the world of, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barker James Harvest and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. So, um check me out with my prog knowledge which well, the I german the germans were doing their kraut rock at that time and it was a lot better yes well I, he did have a tangerine dream record right. and patrick moraz but um but, but can and amondul too and uh you know all those or noi and all those people their music sounds fresh as possible now i mean it's probably it's hugely influential it's hugely you know it now it sounds great whereas frankly you won't want to listen to gentle giant too much i wouldn't have thought no, you wouldn't. But bizarrely, the, one of the members became a producer. And I know a lot of indie bands often mention that he was a really lovely guy who got a great sound. But I can't remember his name. But um, 
Yes, good old gentle giant. I don't know. Camel. We loved them, didn't we? But then, yes. So look, coming up to the present day, 2023, mm. you've got this anniversary single out, the Run Run Me Down single that came out in 1983, which was um, an interesting period. This was when Thatcherism was in its full steroid glory, wasn't it? She'd won the war and everything was going great guns. So what was the, what was the mood like with the band entering the studio to record it? Can you remember the rehearsals and it coming together? I can't remember very much at all. I, I can remember that we got Jerry Dammers to produce it because on a drunken night, I bumped, my friend Pete Saunders played in Dexys Midnight Runners. He, Dexys had been touring with the specials. He introduced me. We had a bit of a bit of a laugh and, and I said, would you like to produce us? And he said, yes. So we went into the studio in, in Leamington Spa, I think, or something like that. And it, I, I can't, I, I just know we did it, and Joey did a very laid back job of producing it. And it sounded, we changed the way it was going to be tear, it was, it was, um, it's going to, it's called tear the whole thing down, isn't it? But it was originally called burn the shit house down or something like that. And, and we decided to change the words. Yes. Yes, it is. It in an be. attempt at getting on the radio, probably. I know Steve Wright in the afternoon would not like um, mm. to use those kind of language. But and so, yes, run me, down, run me down coincidentally has the word down in it again, which is you know there we go. It's obviously a thing. But it has a very funky sound, and and listening to it now, you know, it, it sort of stands up, doesn't it? Mm. To 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 four decades. Well, run me down. I would say was. If 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 orange juice hadn't held had um, reared up and start again, which is about the same sort of thing, um, I think that was that was that was what we were aiming for. That sort of sound, funky but mainstream, yes. Pop. And you know, there obviously wasn't room for both of them to be hits at the same time. But that's the sort of sound we were going for. Yes, and that's a, so. Oh, whose whose idea was it to to focus on this release from '83 as a the anniversary? I'm afraid I haven't. <laughs> I, I think it's Terry, but I don't know. I'm is not Terry... sure where the original idea has come from for that. Yeah, but it's it's been but it's been what label is going to be putting it out? I think it's on Terry's sartorial, yeah, sartorial records. Right. So Terry is the man who's archiving his it, he he has been archiving the Higsons, and I think he probably he 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 is the kind of guy who would who would be aware that these songs hadn't all been out on vinyl together. Right. And he would have decided. And I think he spoke to Joe Dammers to see if Two Tone wanted to do it on. So so two, whoever it is who actually now owns a Two Tone catalogue has, has done a deal with us to let us do this. Yes, absolutely. But, but I haven't been following that much detail. So I don't really know much more than I have a copy. And, and, um, <laughs> but you've got all the you know like 12 inch versions which we loved in those days instrumental and also yeah. lang lang which is another a classic it it does it does have that sort of pop funk vibe to it which um yeah i would i would imagine the kids are going to love it i have no idea whether the kids love it or not but certainly um it's 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 you know it's for record store day that's the that's the that's the thing yeah so Record store, they like, I mean, that people do these kind of, you know, one-off um, anniversary type releases for that. Yes, available. And, um, but obviously, um, you know, the Higsons aren't planning on getting back together at any point. So I don't think there's going to be any gigs to 
back this up with or anything like that. No, but then you. But then, so what happens? Did you have a kind of a moment like I don't know, the doors, the end? Did you all sit together in a pub and say that's it? We're going to just the band's over, or did it just sort of fizzle out in a rather? No one just bothered phoning each other. It it wasn't really a no one bothered phoning each other. I think I think we sort of knew, and then we just decided, okay, let's do a couple more gigs. To to um, I think we had to pay a VAT bill at one point, so we did we did at least a gig in order to pay that off. Yes, and, but we it, that was all very done in very um, friendly, really, or whatever the word is. Yeah. Um, nice. We just knew. I mean, a couple of people like had had started getting into painting and decorating. And I, I don't remember. So about eighty six, lots of people in London, particularly, were doing up there. You know, there was a big property thing going on of of doing up properties and selling them and stuff. And people, people, um, people were able to make more money as painters and decorators than we ever made. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So bosh, bosh, loads of money. Loads of, yeah, and that and that was what um, Charlie and. Um, because Paul Whitehouse and Charlie have both been at university as well, Charlie Higson. So with us, so so it was that was like a that was pretty, that whole loads of money thing actually pretty much came from the painting and decorating that Charlie and Paul were doing towards the end of the Higson's career, really. Oh, okay, God, <laughs> that's a good guess actually. So then, what what happens to you? What what where, where's your next musical or creative moment, or is it sort of? I I, I currently well, I, I mean, I, I I've been doing music with. Various people ever since, including that. Well, I did. I did lots of that guy Pete Saunders. I mentioned when he was in Dexys, and um, I, 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 I currently for the last 12, thirteen years, Terry and I have had another band called the Near Jazz Experience, which we've with Mark Bedford from Madness, and we've been putting out stuff and playing since uh, twenty ten, I think it is. Yeah. Yes. I got another one called Simon and the Pope, which is a sort of funk. It's a duo, which is sort of. Somewhere between Ian Dury and um, and some kind of funky Krautrock thing, and nice. Gideon Co plays us quite occasionally and stuff like that. So, uh, and living down in St Leonard's, there is—I don't know if you know Hastings St Leonard's, but it's it's a massive music scene down here. It's it's like and there's there's lots and lots of ex-members of bands and you know people from. Uh, Things through from you know Alabama three to the ruts to you know also across the board people playing music with each other in lots of venues. It's kind of place where pubs regularly have music and yeah. I so think um, I think I, have you come across a band called the Lucy Show? I think there was a member of the Lucy Show who went to Hastings. I did an interview with and I went the Lucy Show. I remember them being they were banned around quite a while ago, weren't they? Yeah, they were in the eighties, but one yeah. of the members I think now lives down in Hastings. I just wonder oh. if you. Almost certainly. Well, I mean, as I said, there's so many that wouldn't wouldn't surprise me at all. No. no. So did you have to sort of get a sort of a day job to, you know, like keep yourself going and the music was kind of a kind of... I've done, I mean, I've done all, this, all the things that people would do. In, I mean, I've done driving and uh, I've done painting and decorating and all that stuff. Since I've lived down here, uh, there's, there's a venue called the Kino Teatra, which is a big arts, music and cinema and arts venue. And I'm the music manager so i get to put on events there but also i actually get to play there myself as well and the nj and various other people play there fantastic that's, that's been going down here for about eight eight nine years yes god that's that's all good stuff and um if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out in this kind of interesting world of music and creativity mm. is there anything that you would have 
just wanted to tell them, even if they just ignored you anyway? Uh, probably, um, if, if, if now that I'm 63, I would probably say that it, I'm actually quite pleased to have continued doing what I did because I because I actually enjoy playing music more now than ever. Yes. And I do, I do tend to, and the stuff I do is the stuff that I want to do. I'm not sort of doing, generally, generally doing other people's thing. And if you can maintain that sort of independence, if you can get to do that, that's great. But you won't make any money out of it. So if you want to make money, do something completely different. Yes, I remember doing an interview with, is it John Drumbo French, who was in Captain Beefheart's Magic yeah. Band? And um, he had a quite a disturbed time because he did Trap Mask Replica, which, you know, I think mm. they were almost kidnapped. and They were, they were sort of manipulated and kidnapped and stuff. Yeah, yeah and he yeah. said he just wished he'd been in Crosby, Stills and Nash and made some money, but... Instead, he got sort of emotionally abused and broke. So, but you get you get the kudos of having been on Trap Mask replica. It's true. Uh, you, it's don't, true. you don't get a sting-sized um, paycheck. <laughs> I mean, there's a guy. There's a guy. Another guy who's moved down here. Who's, who's a friend of mine. He's called Anthony Moore. And Anthony Moore did things like in the seventies. He did Henry Cow slap happy. He produced this heat. Uh, he's he's done a whole raft of things which are incredibly alternative. Yes. He only can exist because he also wrote lyrics for Pink Floyd in the 1980s. And so that's his pension. Pink Floyd pension. That's a good pension. That's a good pension, isn't it? Yeah, this heat. And that's what we'd all like to have. We'd like to have a Pink Floyd pension. But um, I mean, one thing that happened to the Higsons was that when about five, six years ago, we got one of our tracks used on BBC Two and BBC Four as an ident for like four months. So you get quite a big you know you got that was worth a few thousand but i mean it's not it's not mega but it's that's that's sort of what um, keeps you going that sort of that, those little things like that yeah you can't really have a a studio record you know flat built but yeah. you could probably get the doors replaced can't you you get the doors replaced and then and the reason so many musicians live down in St. Anson Hastings is it is that it's um it's cheap yeah but but lockdown has changed that because so many other people realized that and they moved down here with with their laptops and and it's now rapidly going up in yes the... but you probably get better broadband don't you i would imagine so <laughs> with all these people needing better connections anyway yeah, no, look that's true yeah. yes indeed yes that dear listener was me in conversation with simon charterton from the higson's drummer vocalist and um, now in his uh, new combo, the Near Jazz Experience. But the most important thing about the Higsons, and there's lots, but uh, it's uh, going to be the re or the issue or the release of Run Me Down, the complete two-tone recordings that's coming out on Sartorial Records. This is going to be, yes, 2023. Do check it out. There's something like six tracks, including Tear the Whole Thing Down, and various other instrumentals and extended 12-inch versions. So uh, it's going to be fantastic. This, though, has been the C86 Show. I'm David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>